That's a halfway decent push-up. Way to go, dude. Proud of you. Yeah. Oh, so big. Oh, he burnt it. And set off the fire alarm. Oh, and nice. He had to clear, they had to clear the whole door at 11.45 at night. Oh. So everybody had to go out. And uh, so he was the talk of campus for quite a while. Nice. He's tough, right? That's, that's a joke. That's funny. There were oh, lots of He's got the low tie. And yeah. the, he looks like Trump. He does. <laughs> You know what? I think he is. Funny. Where was the camp? Probably no, but I don't. Okay. The Lord provides. <laughs> Dad forget when like, the weather's different. Yeah. It's okay. Especially like going in the summer, it what you said probably probably made it more so. Yeah. It's not I've done some stuff in the Oh, you know what? Something that brings you away from Christ. 
right? Like, so like <coughs> Jesus was being tempted in the desert, but Satan, Satan was going to get him to bow before him, right? Like, give him the power. Versus the testing was happening to Job was stuff that was happening to see how, you know, how much he trusted that God. Right? So like, you can see how how you doing, Art? Better than I thought it Yeah? Amen. I picked Caleb up and went, oh. <laughs> Trying to give you guys a good reading structure for next week. Oh man. Yeah, okay. So Calvin, you're, you and uh, Ralph are going to be turned up so you can be looking at Pastor Jordan, right? Yeah. Cool. I don't know if you guys read it, but the uh, beautiful appendix on the documentary hypothesis was really interesting. From the, uh, the notes, yeah. yeah. All right, friends. Well, we're going to get started. Um, is this on recording already, Matt? Yep. It's yeah. Glorious. Um, thanks for joining us as we continue our class on Old Testament Bible survey. I hope that you guys have enjoyed the last couple of weeks. It is going to feel like drinking water from a fire hydrant. So um, last week, uh, you know, I mentioned that Matt's putting together recordings. We are putting those Together, we're going to try to put them on the church website and app. We're working through the what that looks like and what kind of editing process we have to do. Um, so what the, the fine print of that is we're looking to delegate that to somebody. So we're, we're working on it um, quite quickly, and we hope to have a solution for you for next week. Um, I'm also taking my notes and trying to put them into a format that will be with that audio. Okay, So as you go through the material... You'll not only be able to listen, but you'll be able to see what I'm using for manuscript notes um, for notes. your advantage. Yeah, the show notes. <laughs> yep. And trying to figure out what's, what's helpful for you because there's about 10 pages to each class lecture. So um, glad to be with you this morning. I hope that you guys got to read through Genesis 12 through 50 or listen to it. I listened to it and read it this week, found it to be very helpful. Um, I, I often listen to audiobooks and try to put them up to like 1.3 speed yes. just to get a little bit of a quicker pace because I feel like the natural American English tone is very slow. Um, but I was challenged by that because I have the ESV audio Bible read by Kristen Getty, who's a woman from Northern Ireland, right? So I like the Irish... Uh, accent to listen to, but when you try to speed that up, it, it doesn't work. Yeah. All of a sudden, she, she sounds really odd in that process. So I was like, okay, it's, it's time to slow down. 
and to really just soak this in. So I think that was the Lord teaching me to be comfortable sitting in Scripture. So hopefully you learned that this week as you were reading your passages of study. Uh, Just a highlight for next week, we are going to be in Exodus 1 through 19. Every week I have been proposing a reading schedule for you where you read through the material three times. Okay, so next week, uh, if you're looking for a reading pattern, if you can do it all three times, amen. If you can only get through it once, praise the Lord. I highly recommend that you read the entirety of what we're going to cover in one sitting. Okay? Exodus 1 through 19 will take you about an hour and 15 minutes to read sitting down. So block out an hour and sit down, read through the entirety of that passage. And really be disciplined about it, brothers and sisters. Like, turn off your phone notifications, get away, and just read God's word and buckle in your heart so that you're not distracted by all of the things that you could be planning in that hour and a half. So when you say you're reading that in an hour and a half, you're kind of speed reading that. You're not taking notes. You're not no. making highlights. You're not. This is just simple reading, right? Yeah. So no <laughs> note taking, no highlighting. No, no. It is just simply taking in God's word, okay? So it's a really good practice. And then after you've done that at least once, as you start to get through the smaller chunks and then eventually your second reading, that's a great time to sit down and start taking notes, highlighting, thinking through questions, okay? Yes, Katrina. Um, Is that uh, verse 1 through 19? No, it's chapter 1 through 19, one sitting. Oh, okay. Of Exodus. 19 chapters. Yep, 19 chapters, okay? Thank you. Um, Yes, and then we have, I've intentionally structured it out this way. What we're going to find is that Exodus 1 through 19 is going to be the story of how Israel was enslaved in Egypt, the plagues and how God rescued them from the Egyptians, and then the establishment of the Ten Commandments. Okay, So it's set up this way particularly for your advantage. As you read through it, each part is like a scene change within the book of Exodus. Okay, So just important things to highlight here. This is a recommendation. Okay. Uh, if you don't get to it, at least try to read through the entirety of the passage or the the stuff that we're studying for next week. You want to read that into the record really quick? Yeah, so that's going to be Exodus one through nineteen on Monday. Tuesday will be Exodus one through six. Wednesday will be Exodus seven through thirteen. Thursday Exodus fourteen through sixteen. Friday Exodus seventeen through nineteen, and then Saturday. Exodus 1 through 19 again, okay? Now, if you'd like to Sabbath rest on Saturday, you should still read your Bible. So Exodus 1 through 19, you're welcome, <laughs> okay? Awesome. Um, so I did have a couple of questions that came last week um, from a, a few folks. Uh, I don't have them written down right in front of me at the moment, but I'll circle back to them if I can for Genesis 1 through 11 for, uh, at the end of class, okay? So uh, my goal is to try to get through the material for Exodus, tw- or Exodus, I'm already there, Genesis 12 through 50 in the next 40 or so minutes, okay? All right, so let's start with some prayer, and then we'll dive into our material. Father, we thank you that we can study your word. We thank you, God, for this Bible survey class in which we're learning uh, through the entirety of the Bible in the next year. 
We are thankful that your word teaches us about who you are, what you have accomplished, and about your mission of redemption, and who we are in light of what Jesus has done to rescue us. God, we pray that you would help us to have eyes to see what it is that you've given us in scripture this morning, that you would give us ears to hear this good news, and that we would glorify you and praise you in our time of study. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> is anything too hard for the Lord? No. no. That's the, the answer we want to give. But that actual quotation right there comes from Genesis eighteen fourteen. God is speaking, and he's speaking to Abraham and to his wife, Sarah. Abraham was about 100 years old. Sarah was 90. And God had just told them that they were going to conceive a child, their first child together. After decades of barrenness and aging, within about a year's time, this child would come. And Abraham and Sarah laughed at the Lord. Abraham laughed out loud. And Sarah laughed to herself. What God promised them was so ridiculous and so preposterous, so inconceivable, that it simply couldn't happen. Their bodies were as good as dead, and God must have been joking or insincere or perhaps even mistaken. And so they laughed. And God corrected them. He asked, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. A year later, when a son was born to Sarah in her old age, God made sure that they remembered their faithlessness. How did he do this? He commanded them to name their child Isaac, which literally means he laughs. It seems the mocking laughter of their disbelief had turned into a laughter of joy. Well, you found yourself in the Old Testament survey class uh, through the book of Genesis. We are in our second class through the book of Genesis. We're covering the bulk of the material that we find in the book today. And last week, we looked at the main event in Genesis, the creation and the fall of Adam and Eve. This week, we're going to look at the second main event, which I would describe as the establishment of a special family through the person of Abraham. The establishment of a special family through the person of Abraham. So what do all 38 chapters in this class cover? They give us a, a view into the lives of Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. These are also known as the three patriarchs of Israel. And understanding this family line is so crucial to our understanding of the Bible in its entirety. Because through them, God begins to unfold his plan of redemption, which we can summarize in just a few phases, or phrases. God's special people will live in God's special place under God's special rule. People, place, rule. God's special people will live in God's special place under God's special rule. People, place, rule. If you want a lengthier summarization of Genesis 12 through 50, we could say it like this. God is making a gracious covenant with one man and his descendants, which will bless the entire world. In this covenant, God has promised to be their God. <coughs> he also promises unilaterally 
that they will be his special people, that they will live in the place of his choosing, and that they will enjoy a unique relationship with him under his rule. People, place, and rule. To orient you to our time together this morning, I want to give some background. And I'm just going to be walking through basically three generations of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is going to help you understand how God's plan of redemption unfolds through them. We found out last week that the curse that we found in the fall wasn't meant to be a dark, just a dark cloud on the history of humanity, but in fact was to be a light to shine us to the hope that God is promising through his story of redemption. God's people in God's place under his rule. So let me just give you a summarization of what we are going to cover in these chapters. So first, in Abraham, the person of Abraham. The life and times of Abraham are found in Genesis 12 through 23. Genesis 12 through 23. They detail God's calling of Abram out of Mesopotamia. They reveal a progression of promises to him. And then at the end of this section, God finally ratifies all that he has said to him with a covenant sign, which is circumcision. And he gives him a new name, Abraham. (coughs) But it also reveals to us that there's a troubled family history for Abraham both within his own marriage and with his nephew, Lot. The second section of Genesis 12 through 50 covers the person of Isaac. This is found in in really in, in just a few chapters, Genesis 24 through 28. Famously, Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, had twin sons. Josue, think of triplets. Twin sons, they were named Jacob and Esau. Like Abraham, Isaac's household was troubled with sin and faithlessness. A humbling reminder to us that they're children in the faith and of God's enduring mercy and his unshakable love for us. And the third section is Genesis 29 through 50, which covers the person of Jacob. The adult and family life of Jacob really kind of covers the majority of what we see in the book of Genesis. It details his multiple marriages and his severely troubled family life. But Moses draws our attention once again to just one of this patriarch's sons. That's the son Joseph. This is the moving and extravagant story of the annoying favorite son sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt and then into prison. From prison, God then vaults Joseph to the highest office of the land. And Joseph uses this position to bring a fulfillment in part to God's promises to his great grandfather to be a blessing to the nations. He delivers the nations and even his own family from a devastating famine. As you read through the book of Genesis, You will see the extravagance and the unexpectedness of God's plan. Old women give birth to sons. And younger sons and brothers will rule the older. It's almost backwards from what we would conceive. Arrogant men are turned into humble. Slaves become rulers. And the homeless will be given a home. 
God's storyline of promise and fulfillment is not a normal human story. At every turn, there's an unexpected and an impossible situation, it seems like. But man's plans are consistently thwarted, and God's sovereignty continues to show that it is supreme. You see, God has arranged his plan of salvation to encourage our trust in him. If he could accomplish reversals like those that we see in the book of Genesis, he can accomplish such reversals and change even in our lives and in our time for his own glory. So before we jump into all of the detail of Genesis 12 through 50, let's remind ourselves of what we covered in Genesis 1 through 11. God made all that exists, including Adam and Eve. He gave them a special place to live in. He commanded them to be fruitful and multiply into a global people. And he set them under his benevolent and perfect kingdom rule. Place, people, rule. The same context of Genesis 12 through 50. God's establishing a people who will live in a place under his rule. But they sinned, right? We saw the sin that came. Just as God condemns Adam and Eve, he also sets forth the first glimmer of hope in the promise of salvation and cursing Eve, the the mother of all humankind. Genesis 3.15, one of the most important verses for us to memorize in the Bible, but especially in Genesis 1 through 11. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. But remember that this enmity is actually good news. It's good news for us. It means that the seed of the woman will war against the seed of the serpent. And that one day the seed of the woman will prevail. The promised one will restore God's people to God's place under God's rule. So now this is the second part of Genesis. We see this plan actually begin to play out. So by way of historical review, as we're looking at Genesis 12 through 50, Moses is still our author. Starting in chapter 12, we begin to assign some dates to these events. We'll pick up today with Abraham, whose story takes place about 2,000 years ago, or 2,000 BC, give or take uh, 100 years or so, and we'll cover through the life of Joseph, whose death we can date somewhere around 1800 BC. Okay, so we could be anywhere from 2100 BC, 1900 BC to 1800 BC. So let's look at God and Abraham. Okay, God and Abraham. <laughs> let's turn to Genesis 12. Matt, can you read Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 for us? One of the mats. Whichever one gets there first. Wage war. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. 1 through 3? Yep. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. 
that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Amen. Amen. In these promises to Abraham, we see God's purpose in his kingdom, his people in his place under his rule. We'll look at each of these components of the kingdom. So let's start with God's place, the land that God promises to Abraham. So in verse one, God promises Abraham a land. The land is significant because you'll remember that Adam and Eve's sin They were driven out of the perfect land of Eden. The land promised here to Abraham, the land of Canaan, was a real historic location. But it also serves as a picture of a greater reality to come, that of the new creation at the end of time. God is reversing the fall for himself. I'm sorry. God is reversing the fall and reestablishing for himself a people who will live in a certain place under his rule, like Adam and Eve did. It's not the complete return to paradise, but it's a foreshadowing of it. Abraham and his immediate descendants understood this. In Hebrews 11, we read this. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise (coughs) as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Okay, that's Hebrews 11, I believe verse 8 through verse 10, Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. This explains the true nature of the promised land. The true nature of the promised land is that it's a heavenly city built by God and not by man. But Abraham's pilgrimage is also an encouragement to us. The record in Genesis is that Abraham wandered the whole of the rest of his days. He went from place to place with all of his people. And in fact, the only plot of land that Abraham officially owned during his lifetime was the grave plot where he buried his wife. And just like Abraham, if we share his faith, we've been called from our natural home in this world to God's heavenly country. We are pilgrims who await the fulfillment of God's promise. If we hold to this faith as Abraham did, we will share in these same blessings. So that's the promise of the land. Okay. But secondly, we must notice in verse two that God will make of Abraham a great nation. In understanding the development of the kingdom of God, this nation is God's people. From Abraham will descend the godly line which originated with the woman Eve who will eventually give birth to the Savior of the world. This is clear from the next verse in verse 3, where it says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. While Abraham and his descendants make up one family, one nation, the blessing here is for all families. Through God's special relationship with Abraham's descendants, 
anyone anywhere can repent of their sins and put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness, eternal life, and a relationship with God. All well and good. But how is this going to happen? Well, that's where we get the news of Genesis 15. Okay? God has promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. So turn to Genesis 15 too. Other Matt, will you read Genesis 15, 2, and 3? Sure. <clears throat> but Abraham said, oh, actually, but Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now remember, Abraham at this point was 75 years old when the promises of chapter 12 were made. In his entire life, his wife, Sarah, had been barren. Now he's beginning to doubt that he'll ever have one son, let alone an entire nation's worth of sons. So God reaffirms his promises to Abraham. Continuing on in chapter 15, verse 6, it says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham is counted righteous in the sight of God, because of his faith. This is good news for Abraham after we've seen how sinful mankind is. Abraham is a sinner just like everyone else, but he is counted righteous because of his faith in God. This is a doctrine that Paul will stress again in the New Testament. In Romans 4 and Galatians 3, Paul uses this very verse to prove that the only way anyone can be righteous in the sight of God is through faith and faith alone. The Bible is clear that no one can ever, through their good behavior or good deeds or church attendance or their baptism or anything in and of themselves, earn this necessary righteousness. But we can be given it by faith, faith alone. So we've been seeing um, something about God's promise of a people. And in the obstacle, God has sovereignly laid in the way that Sarah's barrenness, we've seen an important characteristic of this people. There to be a people of faith. So third, let's consider God's rule over his kingdom. Significantly, this aspect of God's plan is not clear in the story of Abraham, but that makes sense because it's the part that the people failed to live up to in the Garden of Eden. So God simply reimposing his rule just doesn't make sense here. Instead, God's rule will have to take a new form. And that's precisely what we see. <coughs> so let's look at again at chapter 15, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. A covenant in this context is a solemn bond and agreement between two parties with terms and conditions that can only be broken upon the penalty of death. So in verse 8, Abraham has to ask, and I can certainly empathize with him, how can I know that these promises will come true? After all, God promises to Adam and Eve uh, depended on their obedience, and so they failed. What about these promises? God quickly replies in verse 13. He says this, no for certain, no for certain. 
The ritual animal sacrifice and mutilation that we find in the rest of the chapter is designed so that Abraham can know for certain that God will be good on his promises, that he'll make good on his promises. Because when it comes time for God and Abraham to ratify this covenant together, God puts Abraham to sleep and he does it alone. So the covenant he establishes with Abraham, he, he says, here's the terms and conditions. Trust me and I'll do it. This is a covenant that God will deliver on regardless of Abraham's obedience. It's a covenant of grace. We'll visit this covenant many more times in our Old Testament overview. But for now, we see that God in this covenant with Abraham, a covenant that will bless the nations of the world as we read in Genesis 12. But unlike the rule of God that we saw in Genesis 2, where the covenant depended on Adam and Eve holding up their end of the bargain, this covenant is unilateral dependent only on God. And in chapter 26, we read about how the covenant promises are passed along to Abraham's son, Isaac. And then later on again to his son, Jacob in chapter 35. In all of this, we have what? People, place, and though less clearly, rule. People, place, and rule. So why are we picking our way so slowly through this? For that matter, why does Moses suddenly focus in here? After all, chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis are cosmic in scope and global in scale. And then suddenly we focus in on God's dealings with a single man. Abraham. Why? It's because in these promises we see the blueprint for God's plan of redemption. As he takes the pieces broken in Eden... God's people and God's place under God's rule, and he begins to bring them back together. And that brings us to Isaac, because these promises given to Abraham are not fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime, but they are passed along to his son. And so this family line becomes a line of promise, just as we saw in Genesis 3.15. Abraham and Isaac. Well, Abraham finally had a son. Good news, right? He'd been waiting quite a period of time. And naturally, the reader is wondering if this is the promised one, right? If we didn't have the rest of the Bible, had no you know, preconception, presuppositions of the Bible, if we were just reading the narrative from Genesis 1 all the way now to Genesis 24, we'd be saying, Isaac is coming. He's got to be the one. Well, as we find out, He's not the one. Isaac makes a lot of the same mistakes that his father made, and he dies without seeing the promises fulfilled. But he doesn't die without an heir through whom the promises can continue. So is his son Esau the one who will receive the blessing and carry the, the kingdom of God forward? After all, he's the firstborn. Surprisingly, the answer to that is No. His younger brother, Jacob, is the heir of the covenant. And God has, through his free choice, decided that it is through Jacob that his plan of redemption will continue. So the idea that God chooses who will be 
His is one of the most challenging doctrines that we can face in the Bible. It's the doctrine of election. It's the doctrine that some will be given grace and that there are some that are chosen by God purely on the grounds of grace, not on the grounds of anything that they've done. Well, why would God choose one son over the other? Was Jacob more righteous than Esau? No. Just reading the following chapters, Jacob is actually sly, he's deceitful, he's an opportunist. If you think that Jacob was chosen because he was more righteous than Esau or more faithful, then the rest of Jacob's story becomes very confusing. Let me tell you the explanation that we see in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, 10 through 12 says this, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who was called, she was told the older will serve the younger. Did you hear that? God chose Jacob before either twin had done anything good or bad. And the reason that he chose Jacob then was so that God's purpose in election might stand. What is that purpose? So that inclusion in God's special family might come not by works, but because of him who calls. So how, so do you see how critical the themes are that God is unveiling in this family? We've learned another thing about God's people right here. They become part of God's people by being called by God into faith. Not by being physically descended from Abraham. We have no rights over God. We're all rebels If we get anything good from God, it's by the pure 100% vintage grace. And this grace is to God's glory. God's grace is meant to humble us, knowing that we have nothing to commend ourselves to God with. And it's intended to give glory to God for how kind he has been to us, who through him... And through his son are included into his gracious kingdom. So through the family of Isaac, we learn a little bit more about God's plan of redemption. So let's zero in on his son, Jacob, to see what we can learn there as the story of the seed of the woman continues. God and Jacob. From Jacob will grow the great nation that God promised to Abraham. Abraham had only one legitimate son, Isaac. And Isaac had two, but only one was included in the promise. Now, Jacob has 12 sons. This gets a bit complicated, doesn't it? We've gone from one legitimate to one chosen. Now, 12 sons. What is God going to do with this? At least numerically speaking, as Jacob's family starts to grow into the great nation that God had promised, we get to focus in on one of the sons that we see come out of this in Joseph. So we're going to really emphasize Joseph's story. Let's turn to Genesis 37. 
Josue, will you read Genesis 37, 9 through 11? Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bound down to him. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the, to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the same mind. Yep, amen. Thank you. And I find that story just so fascinating, especially the response that you see from the father, where he's like, what do you, what do you mean by this? Right? And the responses we see at the end Initially, our, our minds are like, oh, Jacob is not a fan of Joseph's dream here. But it tells us his brothers become jealous, and Jacob just settles the matter in his mind. He keeps it there. The dream that we see here is a prophecy of Joseph's future role as a savior for his family. His brothers aren't exactly pleased with their uppity younger brother, Right? Verse 11 tells us they were jealous, and by the end of the chapter, they've already sold Joseph into slavery. Right? They heard the news. They were not happy. What's the plan? We'll throw him in a pit, and we'll sell him into slavery. As he's in Egypt, he's able to wake, work his way up to a high position, but when he's betrayed by his master's wife, he's thrown into jail. After many years in jail, he's finally released. And by this time, he's released by an amazing work of God. He's serving as the prime minister of Egypt. The Pharaoh puts him in charge of the food supplies for the nation. And when a famine hits, and it's Joseph's wisdom and foresight, which he credits to have come from God, that saves the Egyptians. And he saves many other nations around them, including his family back in Canaan. Now, there are many things going on in the story that we could look at. But let's look at just one thing. Let's see Joseph's response when, his, when he encounters his brothers again after all his troubles. The same brothers who sold him into his troubles all those years earlier. Turn to chapter 45. And Kathy, would you read verses 4 and 5 for us? Or as he says it later in chapter 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Isn't that interesting? Joseph says that they sold him into slavery. They cannot escape the responsibility of their actions. But in the same breath, he says that God sent him before them. Why? 
The purpose of this was to preserve life from the famine. What an astonishing reversal. What a demonstration of God's grace. We have responsibility for what we do, whether good or evil. But finally, and ultimately, God superintends everything. He is completely and totally in control. And what's more, he uses that total control both to uphold justice and to demonstrate mercy. Even as Joseph is doing here, remember that from a theological perspective, there was more at stake here than just the people of Egypt. God had promised Abraham that he would use Abraham's seed to bless the world, a continuation of his promise to Adam and Eve of a savior. And the threat of starvation for Jacob and his family threatened the, exist, uh, the extinction of the line through which God promised to save the world. So the impossible story of Joseph, who saved his family, really showcases the lengths that God would go through to keep his promise. God really did intend these things for good. Admittedly, sometimes it's very hard to see how God is in control when so many tragic and disastrous things happen. We make no claim that we can understand what God is doing. But we can be assured that the universe is not spinning out of control apart from its creator. He is doing good things in every situation, no matter how hard it is to see those things. Even Joseph, I'm sure at times in his prison cell, wondered what in the world God was doing to him. But nonetheless, here at the end, Joseph can see what God was doing. He was preparing to save many lives through him, through Joseph. And yet, as satisfying as that may have been, Joseph would have never comprehend it in his lifetime, the real good that was being accomplished. He wouldn't have seen the immense power of this in his own perspective. We get a picture of that even greater good as we leave the book of Genesis. Turns out Joseph isn't this one seed to come into the world. Rather, it will be Judah, his brother. So turn to chapter 49, and let's look at verse 8. Devin, can you read verse 8? you guys hear the language from Genesis 3.15 here? Putting down the neck of his enemies, crushing his head. Look at verse 10. Katie, can you read verse 10? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the What we have here is a prophecy that through Judah will come a ruler, a king for the people. And that king will be the one who triumphs over Satan, crushing his head, which is Jesus, of course. The words of this prophecy are a little vague, admittedly. 
But this concept will become clearer as we continue through the entirety of the Old Testament. So then, an amazing journey through three generations to see that God's plan of redemption is beginning to unfold. God's people are a people that are called through faith, by faith, in God's place, under God's rule, the rule of the promised Savior of the world. God's people, the line of promise, has come under great attack through these chapters, and yet God again and again and again saves them. God's people remain intact, but at what cost? Look at the very last verse of the book. Genesis 50, verse 26. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. Are God's people still in God's place? Most certainly not. Placed in a coffin in Egypt. That's why God himself had to appear to Jacob in chapter 46 to convince him to go to Egypt at Joseph's invitation. Because Jacob understood the the theological consequences of leaving God's place. So as we end Genesis, we're beginning to see God's people created. They're still under God's rule, but they are out of God's place. And we'll have to wait until next week to see how God has going to take action to bring his people back to their earthly home, which may take some time to be fulfilled. Amen. Genesis 12 through 50, God's promises of faithfulness to make a people who will be in his place under his rule. Questions? Matt. What are the terms there? Suzerain and vassal. It's right on, it's on page 12, underneath covenant. Underneath covenant. Can I see somebody's uh, notes? Go ahead, Dan. So, from my understanding, one of them involves land and one does not. Yeah. I believe it's suzerain that involves the land and one that vassal does not. What is vassal then? Is that it's, it's like a covenant that involves yes. land or one that doesn't? Yes. And so then it would be people, I would assume. Vassal, I mean, the vessel, right? Vassal doesn't. Yeah. Probably. I think that's fair, yeah. I don't have any markers in my notes, and I can't remember why I would have put that in there for you. (laughs) Great question. Sorry, I can't give you more for it. Other questions? Genesis 12 through 50, or even Genesis 1 through 11. Okay, I got a uh, note here. It says, in suzerain, or suzerain, Slash vassal treaties are not two separate kinds. Ah, that's a type of um, treaty, that's right. The greater party, the suzerain, provided benefits such as military protection 
and land grants to the lesser party, i.e. the vassal. Yeah. So it kind of fits along where you said where uh, God really just did a, put Abraham hand to sleep said, I got this. Yep. Yeah, so it's the idea of like the, the covenant being between the two parties, the terms, right? The terms of those, uh, those agreements, right? Where it, like the suzerain would be the one that was in the powerful position to say, I'll provide this, this, and this toward you. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, in, in normal covenantal language, we've got two-sided, I'll do this, you'll do this. So God is the suzerain and Abraham Yeah, is in this particular covenant with Abraham and God, God is, I'm going to make promises to you. You need to trust me. He's already trusted in him. He's counted righteous because of that trust. And he says, how are you going to do it? I'll do it. I think that's more important to understand than maybe the language of how the treaty is developed. That God's promise to Abraham, covenant, his, what was Abraham's need? Faith in God. What was God going to do? Deliver on his promises. Which I think, a little highlight to this, for the rest of our covenantal language of the, the remainder that we'll see if the covenant's established in the Old Testament, important to remember one of the first covenants we see with Abraham is established with God saying, have faith in me, I'll do it. <coughs> that framework will become highly important to the rest of the covenants of the, the, the Old Testament. Because we can easily read into the covenants of the Old Testament, I am responsible for this, and then God will do this. But really, it's under that treaty. Yeah, now. Just can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I, I texted you about it, but I thought it would be good. Uh, so in Genesis 13, when Abraham, uh, or God, promises Abraham that his, his descendants will have the land forever. It's verse 15. Um, like, what do you make of that? Because is for the land to be owned by God's people eternally, uh, do you see that as like a symbolic promise of a, like I know it's, it becomes a question of dispensational versus covenant, but how, how do you think through that? Yeah, I, personally my thought would be that if we look at the broad framework of what we have here established from Genesis 1 through 11 into 12 through 50, God's people in his place under his rule. I think that the, the most essential contributing clause to that is in the word his. It's God's place with God's people under his rule. And the clearest picture of what we see there. I think we'll come to the conclusion in the, in the New Testament, keeping an entire biblical theology consistent, would be in the new creation. Right. So, um, so basically, for those of you that are trying to find out my, my answer on this, do I think the nation, the, the physical location of Israel is going to be essential for eternity? As long as God's there... I think it's the most important context of that is that we'll be under God's placement. 
wherever he would have us. Specifically, I think Revelation makes light of that. It's the new creation. So is the, the, the land of Israel important? Yes. Is it as important as the person of God? No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it still belongs to him. Yeah. But he lets the people use it. Yeah. So while you're saying the nation of Israel, yes, it's important for a time on this earth, but there's going to be a new creation, so that's when that time will be up. Yep. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. I think that's fair. You're welcome. Other questions? The distinction there is more important if you're on the covenant theology side as opposed to the dispensational side. Ah, you know, I really want to take the theological frameworks and do this. <laughs> because I think what's most important is to just let Scripture be what it is, right? What we can most clearly get, whether upon a theological framework or whether you're covenantal or dispensational here, is God's promising to make a people that he will place and rule over. So I'll make that the primary. If, that's, if there's a distinguishment to be made, are there distinguishments between the, theolo- the theological frameworks there? Yeah. Which one's right? Huh? Eh. I had my convictions, but I'll hold those with an open hand. Say, Lord... If I, if I was wrong about not being a full-blown dispensationalist, I'm with you. <laughs> Praise the Lord. wasn't dependent upon my salvation. But I mean, You're willing to change your mind. Admitting. Yeah. But Romans says that Abraham's descendants aren't his physical descendants. They are the ones that also believed by faith. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think there is some clarity. But I'm willing to be flexible on it because I think I, I said Romans says that uh, Abraham's descendants aren't his physical offspring but they're the ones that also believed by faith yeah amen yeah because praise the Lord if we if we carry out the idea that that we are saved through our descent right through our lineage then like we would just be telling it all, all of our people, like, "Hey, my, my babies, We're clear Isla, saved by our yeah, Isla's saved because I'm a Christian. Right. Right? I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians." And we say that's not salvation. <laughs> faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Repentance and faith. Or start looking at like what line of. Abraham's descendants you came from, like, yeah, 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 that would just, yeah, I think those things can be interesting, yeah, and I, th- I think especially when we, we come to eschatology, we need to recognize, like, 
the emphasis we need to put on it is what does Jesus make clear? If Jesus is the son of God, in his word, in the gospels, what he communicated to us, most clearly, especially even in the Olivet Discourses, no one knows the day or the hour except for the father. So major on what Jesus is major on, minor on the minors. Let the minors be the minors, the majors the majors. Yes? I believe that uh, when you, you know, read the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation, that uh, yes, the land of Israel at this time has uh, still prophecies to be fulfilled for the Jewish people to be coming back to their own land, which started in 1948. So, um, so then when that all happens, you know, then comes the uh, world leader, the Antichrist, and then he's going to have, you know, the 144,000 uh, witnesses, and then you have the two witnesses in the temple. So there's a restoration going on, but then uh, when they, uh, it's still going to end up in the new heavens and the new earth. Mm. You know, and then the holy city in Revelation, that's the, where we're all going to live, you know, the, the heavenly city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Yeah. But it's just a lot of stuff still going on in the end times. Sure. Uh, with Israel, and that's going to happen in the land in Jerusalem and Israel. So yeah. this is the dispensational view? Yes, yeah, so Katrina's telling us that she's a dispensationalist, <laughs> which we appreciate. Thank you for your clarity. I think the differences that I would share on this, Katrina, would be the emphasis of restoration being on the entirety of creation. I think that's more important than necessarily just highlighting the significance of the land of Israel. But, um, hey, we love you. We love that perspective. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing that we can put into... Salvation is available to all Jews and yeah. Gentiles. Yeah. Know? And like she said in Romans, it says that they are Jews who are spiritually born again. Yeah. You, know, you have to be born again. Yep. Sal- sal- salvation Gentiles. through Christ alone. Amen. We'll do a future uh, court seminar on all the, all the different eschatological <laughs> points. <laughs> Amen. I could take me. Oh, I can't take any more questions. It's nine fifty nine. Just kidding. All right. Thanks, guys. If you have more questions, I want to encourage you to continue to write them down, email them to me. Actually, text them to me because our email's a little wonky right now. There's a story behind that that I just don't have time for today. So text them to me. Uh, write them down. Call them. Drop them in a box. Send them. Send them by snail mail. Do whatever you need to. Okay. I love you guys. The Lord. We'll see you upstairs. Thank you, sir.